Thank you, Steve, for leading us and reminding us of the freedom we have in, in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read two verses and then we're going to have a word of prayer. So if you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians and we'll look at chapter 7. You know, I think my preaching is getting a little bit like myself. As I get older, I physically am getting slower. And I'm positive my preaching is getting slower. Because I thought I was going to sort of have this chapter 7 cut out in two Sundays, but I think this is our third one on, and I'm not going to finish it today. So I am getting slower. Second Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll start at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. I trust the Lord will add a, a blessing to his word this morning to each one of us. Just hold your finger in the page or on your notebook, whatever you have, because we will be making reference to it. You know, if you woke up in the morning and you found that your hip had collapsed, that you had to get your spouse, your friend or something to put you in a wheelchair and wheel you to the bathroom and, and so forth, um, I'll guarantee if you're a believer and probably not even a believer, you would pray, right? Well, this church has got a collapsed hip. Karen here has got a collapsed hip. And when one member of the body hurts, we all hurt, right? But praise the Lord, she is having an operation, God willing, tomorrow. So when she, when she hurts because she's a member of this body, we all hurt. And so I want to challenge every single believer here tomorrow and before also, but especially tomorrow, to pray for Karen. Can you do that? That, um, that the surgery will go well and, and accept her because she's going to get a brand new hip. She's already got a new heart, but now she's going to get a brand new hip. And even though it's only going to be temporary, but it's going to be successfully temporary, we pray. Excellent. Let's just bow our heads and commit ourselves to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, what a wonderful thing it is to be set free. And we're reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, the truth shall set you free. We thank you for the truth of scripture that tells us of the way of salvation. It tells us of our need of a saviour. It tells us of our sin. And so, Father... We have been set free from your, by your truth because you also tell us that there is one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man, no person can come to the Father but by me. We thank you for that objective, straight, upfront truth that points us to the way of salvation. We thank you for the Saviour who died and provided for us a glorious salvation, a freedom 
a freedom of eternal life, a freedom from condemnation. And as believers we can say we are no longer condemned. And so Father, even in life that is a wonderful, joyous truth. But Lord, we know that that truth will have eternal ramifications because we have been set free. We are eternally secure. We have an eternal life and an eternal heaven promised to us. And because you are true and your word is truth, we rejoice in that. Father, today we just give thanks for one another. We pray for the each and every one. You know all our needs. Sometimes life is difficult. Lord, struggles come, whether it be health or whether it be career, job, family, whatever it is. Lord, we are tested with these things. You test us. So help us to be faithful. Help us to stay the course and look to you and trust in you. Father, I just pray for one another in this regard. Pray for our children amongst us. We thank you for the great weekend that those children had last weekend and by the teachers that um, stepped in and one even stepping up in the last few minutes to take that responsibility. Lord, we just praise you for our children and for the opportunity of serving them. We thank you for your great grace to all of us. Father, we pray especially for Karen here this morning and uh, we just ask, Lord, as she goes to hospital tomorrow and there puts herself, not in the hands of the surgeon, but Lord, she's in your hands, which is far better. And so we trust you. And, but we, we don't presume upon your goodness or grace. Lord, we ask you that you would guide the surgeon and that the operation would be successful. And um, Father, that we will have every reason just to rejoice and uh, praise you uh, upon a successful operation. And so, Lord, we pray for Steve as well, as he no doubt has to take some time out of work and um, these kinds of things. And so, Lord, we just pray for Steve and Karen. Lord, we just now commit the scriptures to you, uh, to our own hearts. May we be willing and submissive as we come under their authority. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've done it for a few years now, but it's never, any, never an easy endeavour to preach after instep. Preach to challenge your souls as they were and, uh, last weekend. But we must press on, must we? And uh, by God's grace, we will be fed again from his word and um, so that we might be changed and uh, transformed to the glory of God. And so with that, we go back to our last study a couple of weeks back and we saw how the Corinthians responded to Paul's, what he was known or is known as his severe letter. It was kind of a last straw, so to speak, on Paul's part. And he wrote the severe letter, and no doubt there was, there, was, there was admonishment in it. There was admonishment for their prideful, selfless actions and for their disloyalty to him. And evidently it seems that there was one member who publicly denigrated him in front of everyone. And so Paul wrote this, writes the severe letter, which we haven't a copy of, but it's made clear reference to And here we are, 
there is a positive response to this letter. This letter was passed on to Titus and then Titus went over to Macedonia and right down into Corinth and handed this letter and spent some time with the believers there at the church. And the positive response that Titus brought back and verbally passed on to Paul, it filled him with joy. It comforted him because you remember, Paul was a wreck, can we say. He was distressed. He was, if you want to call it, anxious. Not necessarily sinfully anxious, but he was really stewing. So much so that he left Athens and he jumped the gun and he went over to Macedonia to try and hurry the process up of meeting up with Titus. And so their response, but their response comforted Paul. And, and, and the very kernel of their response was all about their metanoia, which is their repentance. That's the Greek word for repentance. Their repentance was, was not a worldly repentance, because that can happen, right? In other words, it wasn't just a mere sorrow or a regret for some wrong actions that they had committed, like Judas Iscariot, remember? He regretted what he had done and, and then betrayed the Lord Jesus. For, he felt really sorry for himself. It led to death because he went and committed suicide. It wasn't a sorrow like that. But the Corinthians' response was, was repentance, metanoia. It was genuine it was of God. It was according to the will of God here. We see that in verses 9 and 10. It was the same kind of repentance, by the way, that produces salvation. Remember Jesus, what did he preach? He didn't preach um, human behavior to be improved or anything like that. He preached repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And same word, metanoia. In other words, turn around away from your sin and toward God. It has a negative plus a positive. And this is what the Corinthians had done. It put, brought Paul great comfort, as you can imagine, the relief. But it also produced reconciliation between the among the Corinthians and God himself, and it restored genuine fellowship with the apostle. We see that in verse 9. So they put themselves right before God because of their behavior, but it didn't stop there. They responded to a Paul. This is very important because some people get really hung up on repentance and think it's a private matter. No, it's not. Because this is what genuine repentance or godly sorrow, as we have it in some of our translations, this is what it does. It manifests itself in the life of the repentant person. This is far different than the Poseidon sorrow that we often see in the world. And let me illustrate it. You don't have to go too far in our sporting world before we see some sporting great who has done something wrong, either off the field or on the field. You know what I mean? And obviously he's been found guilty and he goes before a board and, and uh, they fail to meet the expectations of the public and the code that they represent. And then this is what usually happens. I saw one just a couple of weeks ago. They will read out a prepared apology. You heard that? 
which seems to suffice the code's requirement and supposedly earns back their public favour in order to get back into the game. You know, there's such a hollow ring about many of those kinds of apologies, such a hollow ring. There is really, very rarely, any genuine repentance evidenced. Those of us who have raised children or are raising children, I see Danny pushing my grandson back as it falls there. Those of us who have raised children will know this firsthand, and if you don't know it yet, Danny, you'll soon know it, believe in me. I know it, with my wife and I having raised five. Yet often kids, when they know that they've been found out, that's another thing, when they're found out, they will go through all sorts of escapades. One of the things that, especially one of our kids, I don't know whether it was Laurelie or not, it might have been, she was really good at shedding crocodile tears. You know what I mean? In order to escape the consequences of their sin. This is a pretend sorrow expressed because simply this, it's going to be bad for them, so we'll do whatever it takes. But they have no sorrow of how their misdemeanour, whatever you like to call it, we'll call it sin because that's what it is, there is no sorrow of how their sin has grieved God or how it has affected others. It's all about, oh wow, this is going to be bad for me, so I better do what it takes. You know what I mean? Yeah, we all know that. Well, Paul, the spiritual father here in this section, in this chapter here, the spiritual father to his children in, in the faith at Corinth, he received great comfort when he heard of their genuine repentance, just like any earthly parent. When children come and you can sense a genuine repentance, it brings great comfort. And so we looked at how Paul, amidst his painful distress, received comfort from God through the responses of his people. Okay, we kind of looked at that bit last week. So we can ask at this point, what did the Corinthian repentance really look like? How did it prove, how did it give evidence to be real and true and genuine? You with me there? And Paul sums this up, I believe, at the end of verse 11 when he says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And the key word there is demonstrated. In other words, Paul was commending them for their purity in attitude and action. And their attitude and action demonstrated that they were now innocent of the initial transgression. They were free. There was nothing to be held against them. Paul had nothing more to write about him because there had been genuine repentance take place and as far as God was concerned, fellowship was restored because the slate had been wiped clean. Some of us are talking about that this morning earlier on in our theology class. You know, a believer can sin and it can disrupt. It won't disrupt the relationship, but it can and it will disrupt fellowship with God. Don't think just because you're Christian you can sin up large and everything's so honky-dory. No, no, no. You will disrupt your fellowship with God and if he so chooses, he can discipline you like a heavenly father will. And so all their sinful and disloyal conduct by the Corinthians had been forgiven by Paul and by God. You see, genuine repentance toward God and those against, those whom we offend, that's what that does, right? That's what it does. 
God wipes the slate clean and our fellowship with him and one another is restored. We are innocent in the eyes of God. But Paul goes further here. He goes further and he highlights the nature of their repentance. You got that? He, he digs deep and he says, just in case you don't know what you're doing, and I'm sometimes thinking, well, I honestly believe he's writing for future generations right to where we are today. This is what repentance looks like. This is what it looks like. And so he writes about the nature of repentance. And this is important because we really need to discern the nature of our own repentance and at times the repentance of others. Here we have repentance with legs on it. We have clearly stated what repentance looks like. You know, there have been times when leaders of this church, some years back, have had to discern the nature or the purity of someone's repentance. And when we have questioned the sincerity of the individual's repentance, this is how it goes. This is how it went. How can you judge if my repentance before God is genuine or not? How dare you? After all, how can you see what takes place in my heart between myself and God? That's how the answer usually goes. And you might say, fair enough. Well, the answer to those questions that may be fired back at you sometime is right here in our text. You see, because we can know We can know, we can discern pure and genuine repentance because it is observable. It's demonstrated outwardly. It's not all private. You got that? It's not all private. When genuine repentance is in action, you will see the penitent person working out what God is doing in their lives. It can't be held back. You know, when God works, it's not smothered over and invisible. Now, when God works, it will manifest itself. And so that's why Paul is able to give seven characteristics of what godly sorrow or pure repentance looks like. And these are primarily locked up in verse 11. So my sermon today is going to be a seven-point sermon. Okay, Forget about the homiletics classes, and, uh, but here we go. The text leads us. Point one. The first observable characteristic of repentance in the Corinthians was that they were careful or in earnest. You see that in your text? They were careful and in earnest about putting things right. In other words, their godly sorrow produced an attentiveness to secure reconciliation with Paul, whom they had offended. There was no slack attitude like, oh, when I get around to it, or oh, she'll be right, they won't worry about it, he won't worry about it. There was nothing like that. There was no slothfulness in making restitution. It became a priority to the Corinthians. Folks, how we need to learn from this. When we offend or sin against someone, never, ever, ever let it slide. Genuine repentance over any sinful issue involving others demand we front up ASAP and put things right. Godly sorrow over sin does that, right? It really does. I love the illustration of what genuine repentance looked like when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, you remember him? He came to faith when he met Jesus. You can read about that in Luke chapter 19. 
He wasn't going to let bygones be bygones. This is repentance to salvation and, and, there's, and don't think repentance is only about salvation. It has to start there, true, but repentance is something that should be incorporated into our lives every day. But here's a great example. Zacchaeus, he wasn't going to let bygones be bygones. He, he wasn't happy with how he had treated others and, and how others had suffered through his rip-off tactics as a tax collector. So what does he say to Jesus? We have no reason to believe that he didn't. Behold, Lord, half my goods I give, goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house. Now there's a man in earnest with his repentance. Zacchaeus was careful. He was earnest and diligent about restoring and making restitution with those he's harmed. And you all have heard stories about how this has happened in, in modern day life. People have come to the Lord or, or people who have been saved who have misharmed someone or, or done something and they've gone and put that. You would know stories like that. Folks, whether you badmouth someone, whether you selfishly ignore someone, genuine repentance will go all out and put this right with God and also with those whom we have offended. The second observable characteristic of godly sorrow is what Paul cites as, what vindication of yourselves? It's a big word, I don't think I use that too much in my everyday vocabulary. But um, what this word vindication means is, it's from the Greek word apologia. And we sometimes use that word very near to it, which is apologetic or apologetics. It has to do with a person giving us step-by-step defense for their faith and their actions. And so Paul Paul used this word, by the way, when um, he defended himself against the mob in Ephesus in Acts 21, right? He defended himself. He stood up and this is what happened and this is why I'm here and this is what I'm doing. Well, the Corinthians are saying they had a complete change of heart. They no longer wanted to justify their rebellion. How good are we at that? No, we don't like being pointed out. Hey, look, that was an error on your part. I I, I often get pointed out. I I love my wife because she's my second conscience, you know. And she reminds me of how sometimes I speak too harshly. And um, and and not only to others, but to her. (laughs) And so I have to ask for her forgiveness and repent. But but it goes against the grain. We try, yeah, but, 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 we try and justify our actions. Is that how you find it? Too easily. Well, the Corinthians had a complete change of heart. They no longer wanted to justify their rebellion. That's what a child does. And even adults like ourselves. We default. We slip into this default mode of justifying our actions even when they're wrong. We make excuses. And that's not new, is it? Remember God, Adam and Eve? He pointed at him. But, but Lord, the woman gave it to me. He was justifying his actions. So it's, it's, it's as old as Adam and Eve itself. And we kind of default into this mode. But godly sorrow does not do that, folks. It doesn't do that. The Corinthians, with a strong desire to clear their name from the stigma of their sin, you know what they did? They went all out, they made sure that all who knew of their prior selfish behaviour now knew of the change and the repentance that took place in their lives. Wow, that takes some doing, right? They went all out. 
What indignation you have. That's what Paul means by that. They vindicated themselves by defending or apologia of their repentance. Thirdly, the third aspect is that the Corinthians expressed their repentance with indignation. Sorry? The last one was, yeah, uh, with, um, you vindicated. This is the indignation. So what does this mean? It simply means that they recognized, this may surprise you, they recognized where they had been with anger. They had shame. Their behavior, they understood with anger, they understood with shame that their behavior brought upon themselves and upon Paul and upon God himself. In other words, they were totally embarrassed, they were completely shamed out over their conduct. This word actually has behind it that they literally blushed. So intense was their indignation. They were like the, the publican. Remember the publican in the scriptures? Who standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes toward heaven because of the shame and because of the intensity of his understanding and anger about how, how wicked and how vile he was before a holy God. All he could do was he smote himself on the breast and he cried, God, be merciful to a sinner. You can read that in Luke 18. That's what indignation looks like. You see, folks, genuine repentance produces a hatred of sin. A hatred of sin that the penitent person formerly cherished and willingly walked in. Thinking about this, thinking about this, I I often wonder and have to challenge myself. I wonder if we come too complacent about sin that is everywhere around us. In other words, we don't blush at the shame of it all as we should. So what happens in this kind of climate is, uh, we, then we put sin in boxes. Us Christians are really good at justifying sin, you know. We put sin in boxes. And we forget about how God has, has uh, called sin for what it is. Even said, even if a man looks on a woman with lust, as far as he's concerned, he's committed adultery. And, and, and if a man calls a bro- his, his brother a fool, as, as far as he's concerned, he's guilty of murder. We don't tend to see sin as it is, and so we put it in boxes. We tag some sins as real bad ones, some as mediocre ones, and some as I think you women are going to find out soon, and I'll quote Jerry Bridges' title, some we even call respectable sins. And so we muddle our way through life, protecting ourselves with these boxes that we have, we have made up, and, and, we don't, and all that does is it causes us to, to tolerate sin that we should be hating and that we should be shamed out about. John Glass made mention of how God's law you remember, is mostly put in the negative command. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet, etc., etc. How true it is, it's a positive we should be pursuing. Right? It's a positive side that we should be pursuing. I don't think we cultivate enough of that kind of thinking and action in our lives. Too often it seems we keep, we keep our eye on them, thou shalt not, 
and then travel as close as possible to the edge of the thou shalt not cliff, so to speak. You know what I mean? Thou shalt not commit adultery, but man alive. Look what we watch, look what we see, and look what we just treat as, okay, yeah, well, whatever. We don't blush. We tend to push at the boundaries God has set, and we're satisfied that we don't fall over the edge. Rather than fleeing sin, rather than with indignation and shame, going all out to remove sin and its temptation from our faces and pursue righteousness in our lives. May we cultivate, may I cultivate greater indignation and a hatred for sin. As the writer of the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Have a look at that verse. Have a look up what the word encumbrance means. Every encumbrance. And the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The fourth characteristic of godly sorrow is that of fear. See, what was also evident among the repentant Corinthians was that there was a a developing healthy fear of God. A healthy fear of God. I wonder if we have that. I often look back at my father's disciplinary measures toward me and no doubt to the other four of my siblings. But I took it personally, as I should. (laughs) My dad knew how to wield a belt when I deserved it, and I deserved it often, you believe me. But my love for my father and his love for me never waned one little bit. But even though he loved me, I always had a healthy respect for his disciplinary practices meted out for my obnoxious behaviour. I had a healthy respect. That fear, that healthy respect for my dad drew out from me something. You know what it drew out? It drew out from me a behaviour, a conduct, a lifestyle that was increasingly in line with my dad's godly standards. It didn't make me a Christian. But I praise God that dad was. You see, that's what happened when godly sorrow kicked in with the Corinthian believers. They understood that their obnoxious rebellion against God and his apostle, the apostle Paul, deserved and lined them up for God's judgment and discipline. They understood that. They came to understand that. So in reverential awe and fear, they began to walk ever so carefully before the Lord. How? They obeyed him. They honoured him in their lives. So when I see and hear of a disobedient believer, I'm thinking, oh, no fear of God in that person. I don't care what the excuse is. No excuses. Do we have a healthy fear of the Lord? Because genuine repentance produces that. Number five, next we see that godly sorrow involves a forceful longing. The Corinthian believers now longed, had an earnest desire to put things right, very similar to what we had at the, the beginning, uh, to put things right with the apostle. And, and, but this is the opposite, often the opposite to what we feel like when we have wronged someone. Most often the opposite. I well remember as a younger man, I took sides in a church matter without really understanding both sides of the story. The group of men that I was backing 
began to respond in such a way that clearly lacked grace, lacked love, lacked selflessness and certainly lacked understanding. This eventually led to some leaving the church. I was devastated as a younger man. I shed tears at the rift this whole debate, this debacle had caused. And you know what? The last thing I wanted to do was to admit that I was a part of it. I used my youthfulness as an excuse. Because the other men that I was backing were much older than me. The last thing I wanted to do was to front up with those who had been treated harshly and ask their forgiveness for my part in the matter. That's the last thing I wanted to do. It took a year and a half. The Lord just burned in me. It took a year and a half. Then then I could wait no longer. In the end, I, I, I longed for the bitter, sweet action of genuine repentance where I not only confessed before these men of my part and my wrong and my error and what I did, but also confessed before God. And I asked my brothers for their forgiveness. Praise God that they did forgive me. And many of them I have a good footing and a standing with them today. You see, genuine repentance, godly sorrow, is observable. It's demonstrated. It longs to put things right. And then finally, or sixthly I should say, we see, we touched on zeal in verse 7, and we see it here again highlighted as as a, uh, last week, or last time we were together, we touched on zeal. But here Paul highlights it as a characteristic of godly sorrow or, or genuine repentance. So we can ask, well, what does zeal look like? It's a bit of a tough one. We don't use the word too much these days. You will hear it now and again. But what it does, it describes the action of a person where two emotions in perfect unison produce a driving force. Okay, that's what it does. Now what I mean by that, you just take hate by itself, right? Hate. Now you know what that can produce. The most heinous things in the earth, possibly. Horrible things. It can be really ugly. And by itself, you know what love can produce. That can be good, but not necessarily. But when you put them together, you have zeal. You have zeal. Let me quote Jamie Carter on this. Here he says, Zeal is a combination of two equally strong emotions, love and hate. It produces a strong love that hates anything that would harm its object. You got that? Let me read it again. Zeal is a combination of two equally strong emotions, love and hate. It produces a strong love that hates anything that would harm, it, harm its object. You think, oh, well, I'm still not getting it. Think of a classic example. Can't help but go to the Bible for the best examples. And you're probably already there before I am. Remember when Jesus went into the temple? Wow, he was one angry dude, right? He got a whip. He overturned tables. He scourged the money changers. He roused out them all from the temple. That wasn't hate by itself. That was in unison with love for his father's house. 
Genuine repentance, folks, does not produce lukewarm or indifferent Christians. And the Corinthians, in their godly sorrow, regained a zeal for God's holiness. They hated what was evil and they loved what was righteous. Genuine repentance does not produce wishy-washy believers who sit on the fence on matters where God's holiness is disparaged. Repentant believers will be zealous for the holiness of God and if necessary suffer and die in honour of his name. That's what it will do. Finally, number seven. We see the list of in godly sorrow. We see that the Corinthians understood an avenging of wrong. In other words, what happens here was that Paul was noting how in their, their repentance they now possessed a willingness to be punished for their rebellion. They understood that, that because of their own sin. Okay, there we are. Thank you, Josh. You only have to move, bro, and you trigger things in me. Okay. Okay, um, they understood that because of their own sin uh, that they had committed within the church, they understood that that deserved discipline and they deserved to suffer the consequences. You see, there was this massive shift in attitude where now they saw the ugliness of sin and the need for it to be dealt with. Rather than before, it was all about indifference or excuses or or glossing over, she'll be right kind of mentality. Now they understood the avenging of wrong. And of course, this all ties in with a fear of God, right? We step out of line and we offend one another or we sin against others, we sin against God. And we must understand that if we don't repent and put what is right, we're lining ourselves up for the judgment of God. So what does all this prove? What does it all say in the end? These seven aspects of godly sorrow for sin proved that repentance was genuine. What it said was, in a loud, visible format, their, their heart's contrition was the real deal. It was a real deal. It proved that God was working in them in such a powerful way that they could not hold back from demonstrating what he was doing in them. Don't you love that? That's what God does. He loves to work with his people, in his people. These Corinthians were now innocent overcomers. Innocent overcomers. My dear people, we need and should be living demonstration of genuine repentance every day. As I said before, don't think about repentance as only something that's to do with our salvation. Absolutely necessary. But repentance is something that we should be willing and putting into practice whenever we step out of line. And we do that so often, don't we? I do anyway. Our lives should be such that these characteristics of repentance should be, should be a spiritual default mode when we sin against others. But is this how we respond when we have hurt others? Is this how we respond when we offend another brother or a sister in the Lord? Paul closes the section in verse 12 
by making it clear that he, had he wrote this severe letter with one purpose in mind, one clear purpose. He was not berating the person, it seems, he was not berating the person uh, who had slighted him, or was he writing it for his own purpose to be recognised in any way? He wasn't seeking personal revenge or getting back or getting even. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose in writing the severe letter was so that the Corinthians might rediscover their love and their loyalty and their faithfulness they had toward Paul and the gospel. That was his primary aim, that they might get right back with God and get back right with him. His purpose was, in other words, in one word, his purpose was repentance, metanoia. Their deceived hearts had, be, had been so blinded, and, and this is what can happen easily to us, their deceived hearts had been so blinded that they lost the sight of God's servant who was sent to minister amongst them. They lost sight of that, that this is God's man. And here Paul longed that they might have their eyes opened so that their loyalty and love to him might be restored. You know, what a grand purpose for writing a letter to another believer who has offended you. You know when you get upset by someone? I think it's important too, if you are upset, there may be that the other person doesn't know that you have upset them. I think it's equally important to say, hey, I must want to clear things up. What you've said has offended me, and so then good discussion can take place, and, then, and, and if repentance is necessary... That can take place. I'm not saying that every time that you are offended, there needs to be repentance, because sometimes, as someone else says, you know, it's, it's just as big a sin to offend someone as to be offended. Because sometimes people get offended with truth. They can be really offended at that. So that, that doesn't require any repentance on the person who informed them about the error of their ways, no. So you need to understand this. That was what Paul's purpose for writing this letter. May we learn from this man as a leader and as from one saint to another what genuine repentance should look like and what a godly response toward those who hurt us should be. As Paul was greatly comforted and filled with joy over this, over this spiritual action, I call it, in the lives of the Corinthians, may we become the same toward one another. God bless his word together. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing a hymn in closing, and, um, and then I'll give a benediction. The hymn we're going to sing is Search Me, O God, and Know My Heart Today. And so may this be your prayer as uh, we just sort of culminate our thoughts from God's word uh, this morning.